This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Catherine A. Stewart about her book, Long Past Slavery, Representing Race in the Federal Writers Project, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016. Dr. Stewart is a professor of history at Cornell College. Long Past Slavery examines the history behind the collection of more than 2,300 narratives from, the for- from formerly enslaved people as part of the New Deal's Federal Writers Project. Stewart pays close attention to how the ex-slave narratives represented a site of contestation between many people who had competing visions for what America's past looked like and what the future could hold. From black interviewers to members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy to formerly enslaved uh, people themselves, Stewart illustrates how these narratives were battleground over national memory, black identity, and black citizenship. Dr. Stewart, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much, Derek, and thank you for your interest in my work. Yeah, so I guess to get things started, could you tell our listeners how you became interested in this project and why you wanted to study it? Well, there's a long answer, a short answer to that question. Um, So which do you want, long or short? I guess go ahead and give us the long story, you know, take us on a journey. All right. All right. Um, This goes back to my days in graduate school at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And I had been casting about, um, kind of looking in different areas, casting about for a dissertation topic. And I think as many people who are in that position, you know, ABD, all but dissertated, uh, you know, working on trying to figure out where they should go with their first kind of attempt at a major scholarly project, um, I was really kind of feeling like I was flailing about. And I'd been exploring different things. But one of the things that I was kind of interested in was this idea of kind of anthropological or ethnographic encounters. So I'd been taking a couple of graduate courses in uh, specifically culture and theory, where we read The Predicament of Culture by James Clifford. And at the same time, I was also taking a course on kind of the domestic culture of imperialism uh, with a British historian, Kathleen Wilson. And at the same time, then I was taking a course uh, with Matthew Jacobson, who was then a professor at SUNY Stony Brook. He's now at Yale. 
and he was teaching a wonderful course on Cold War um, science fiction film. And I was really intrigued, you know, by kind of having this kind of intersecting ideas about culture and power and how it operates in different kind of national contexts. So what really intrigued me in thinking about uh, anthropology and this idea of kind of cultures of um, domestic imperialism and this idea of kind of Cold War film was the specific engagement or um, relationship between the anthropologist field worker and the people who are acting as informants, as local informants. And I think, you know, people who are hearing this and, and may be familiar with my book or who are going to be looking at my book, you'll see that kind of those ideas about um, power, the power that's ribbon throughout those conversations um, and that process of the anthropologist gathering information from local informants. Um, that it's riven with power and intimacy and then also kind of uh, vast elements of inequality in that relationship really comes through then in kind of how I'm reading uh, the ex-slave narratives um, and the ways in which those encounters were also taking place between Federal Writers Project employees who were working as interviewers and formerly enslaved African-Americans um, who were being interviewed uh, as kind of local informants. So I was just interested in kind of what happens in these encounters um, and why are they so charged in various ways? So that was kind of the, the foundation, if you will, or the framework, I guess the lens uh, that was kind of set in place uh, in my graduate studies. And then um, one of my uh, advisors suggested that I take a look at the WPA uh, slave narrative collection. And it wasn't a collection I was familiar with and I hadn't actually done any reading on it yet. And I took a look at those narratives and they just really leapt right off the page. Um, for anyone who takes a look at them, and I would encourage all of your listeners if they haven't, um, and even if they have, take a deeper look uh, at that collection. It's available through the Library of Congress website online. So it's easy to get a hold of these days. But if you look at those narratives, um, you will see how vivid they are um, and how much kind of the different personalities and the different characters um, come forward, not just in terms of the formerly enslaved African-Americans who are being interviewed, but also even in some cases, certainly is the case with the Georgia narratives, um, the character of the interviewer as well. And so they're kind of really a, a great microcosm um, I don't know, site for looking at these relationships of power in an attempt to kind of gain and collect information about African-Americans experience during enslavement and certainly also an interest in collecting black folk culture um, through this uh, narrative slave narrative project. And yeah, and so speaking about these sources, can you kind of give our listeners a little bit more about, you know, what these sources are and particularly how they came to be? Because I think for people who are, you know, not familiar with the Federal Writers Project or the Act Slave Narratives, they might be wondering like, okay, like how did this even come about? You know, these ma this massive repository of slave narratives uh, as part of this, just one part of this larger project going on. And so how did this come to be? Mm -hmm. it, it is an astonishing um, history. And that's really why I was so interested in kind of looking further into the project. So when I was looking at the narratives themselves and just kind of poking around, there's over 2,300 uh, individual interviews that were conducted uh, in various states with formerly enslaved African Americans. And when you look just at the narratives themselves, you know, and a number of them are quite short. Some of them are only two to three, three to four pages. Um, you'll see that there's great variation in both content and also in style 
are kind of the format in which they were presented. So if you're looking at the content, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is the fact that um, a number of formerly enslaved African-Americans, as you might expect, are talking about the brutality of enslavement. And they're talking about the violence of the system uh, that they personally experienced and witnessed um, and the trauma of that experience. So that doesn't seem so surprising, I think, to historians today. But if you also look more broadly through the collection, you'll also find narratives from formerly enslaved African-Americans that seem to express kind of a longing for what they call the good old days of slavery. Um, and there's a certain nostalgia that comes through in certain narratives where informants are talking about kind of their beloved masters and mistresses um, and kind of this benevolent view of the institution of slavery. So that surprised me, you know, in looking at the narratives that you would have such divergent uh, perspectives from in formerly enslaved African-Americans on the institution. And then the other thing that surprised me was really kind of the format in which they were presented. So again, there's a great variety in the kind of over 2,300 interviews you can look at. Um, a number of them were done as kind of brief biographical sketches, uh, kind of uh, what formerly enslaved African-Americans had done uh, following emancipation and the ways in which they'd um, made great efforts to gain education and rise in the world. Um, a number of the other ones are written as first person narratives, um, as if they were really written directly in the voice of the former slave themselves. Um, and so those first person narratives sometimes, too, are written with a type of phoneticized kind of uh, spelling or attempt to recreate kind of what uh, Southern white writers very often thought of as the black vernacular, um, trying to recreate that on the page. Some of the interviews also include kind of the questions and the answers, um, not just kind of the narrative of the former slave. And they have this um, very often the setup where the interviewer actually talks about uh, approaching the house of the former slave um, and kind of their own observations uh, about the African-American informant whom they're going to interview. So again, it was just such a wide variety um, in this rich collection. So I think what's astounding about this collection um, is that it is the largest collection of ex-slave testimony um, that was gathered in the United States. And that it was gathered so late, I think, is certainly um, a disappointment and shocking. But the fact that it was gathered at the last possible minute, quite literally, um, the last possible decade in which you would still have a generation of African-Americans um, who had been enslaved and who could tell and report and give testimony firsthand, witnessing, if you will, about the experience of enslavement um, was quite important uh, in the 1930s. So the project came about as part of the WPA um, that stands for the Works Projects Administration, um, also known as the Works Progress Administration. And most people have heard of the WPA. Um, they normally, I think, when associated with kind of back to work projects. The Roosevelt administration during the Great Depression was really trying to find creative ways uh, to put Americans back to work. And a lot of the ways they came up with were specifically um, rebuilding American infrastructure. So when people think of the WPA, they think of, you know, guys leaning on shovels. Um, I think they think of, you know, projects to build roads and schools and bridges, um, public recreation areas. And that's something that the WPA was very much involved with. But another, I think, really important aspect of the WPA that people often forget about were the cultural projects. 
And the Roosevelt administration had this kind of radical idea of trying to find and create uh, employment for unemployed Americans in occupations where they had formerly been employed. So the idea is you don't take a writer and give them a shovel, tell them to, to start digging a ditch. Rather, you try to create a series of art projects that can put unemployed writers, um, artists, even theater professionals back to work um, in the occupation uh, that they're best suited for. So part of those art projects included the Federal Writers Project. Um, and the Federal Writers Project, or the FWP, you know, there's all those acronyms uh, from the Roosevelt administration's kind of alphabet agencies. But the FWP um, specifically was focusing on trying to come up with projects for unemployed writers um, so that they could also get back to work. The FWP was regarded at the time as kind of the ugly duckling of the cultural arts projects of the WPA. Um, I think that's because the American public really kind of regarded unemployed writers with a certain amount of perhaps healthy skepticism, uh, but really saw them very often as kind of slackers on the relief rolls. Um, you know, it was kind of an ill-defined category, amorphous category of who constituted a professional writer. So there were a lot of ways in which kind of the FWP was looked down upon at the time. And, and you can look at kind of press clippings and publicity clippings um, that appear in major media of the time, um, really, again, casting this kind of uh, critical glance, looking askance, if you will, at the work that the Federal Writers Project was undertaking. So the FWP started off as this attempt to kind of come up with a project, um, the director of the FWP, Henry Ellsberg, to come up with a project that would put uh, unemployed writers back to work and yet find a project that could somehow be something that all Americans could see the value of, um, something that would not be considered um, highly politicized. You know, during that time period, during the Great Depression, when all of these New Deal programs that are coming about uh, were really revolutionary for the time period and really kind of um, inciting, if you will, quite a bit of conservative critique uh, and pushback against Roosevelt's ideas about how to bring the economy back from the brink of this economic crisis. So um, actually, uh, if you don't mind, I would love to read you, and I promise it's the only thing I'm going to read, but I'd love to read you this um, quote from Time Magazine about what they had to say about the Federal Writers Project. Um, I, it really sums up, I think, kind of the public attitude uh, towards the Federal Writers Project in this time. So this is Time Magazine uh, from the 1930s. They described the Federal Writers Project as, quote, a mazy mass of unemployed newspapermen, poets, graduates of schools of journalism who had never had jobs, authors of unpublished novels, high school teachers, people who had always wanted to write, and a sprinkling of first-rate professional writers who were down on their luck, unquote. <laughs> I think you can see uh, from that quote the ways in which the public really um, was not embracing this notion of a cultural project that was going to put writers back to work. So the FWP is best known, I think still today, for the American Guide series. And that was the first project uh, that Henry Allsberg um, came up with, the director of the FWP. And it was something that he thought was needed at the time, and it could serve multiple purposes. So the American Guide series was meant to be a series of guidebooks that would be carried out at the local and state level um, in all of the states of the United States that would create 
uh, guidebooks um, specifically kind of that would be helpful to the tourist, um, people who it was hoping to promote tourism at a time when Americans wouldn't necessarily have the funds to go farther afield and also kind of reboot local economies by, you know, hoping to promote tourism in those areas. And it was really drawing upon kind of, if you will, the strengths and the local knowledge of writers in different geographical areas in different regions um, who would be able to kind of tell uh, through their own lens, their personal history and kind of the history of their town or their community um, or their state in kind of vivid terms. So it was called kind of a national, it was their first attempt at a national Baedeker series um, for the United States. And it did end up um, becoming quite a successful undertaking for the FWP. Uh, many people were employed working on the American Guide series. A number of the American Guide books are still in print today. Um, so even though they're out of date, obviously, in terms of where to go uh, and um, kind of what you might find in different areas, because they're all from the 1930s perspective, um, they're still valued as a really important cultural resource, um, recording kind of the nation uh, and different uh, elements of regional culture in this time period um, that show up in the American Guide series. But the ex-slave project, um, which I think is really the major contribution of the FWP, and um, it's kind of, I don't know, uh, astounding uh, success. Uh, really came about um, as a result of this other project. So the American Guide series was all about kind of going out, gathering local stories, um, surveying also flora and fauna, but also giving some sense of the different ethnic groups that live in different regions, along with kind of longer histories of those states and those areas. And specifically, uh, the Federal Writers Project, a number of those um, in interviewers who are employed in this um, also began interviewing elderly inhabitants. And that was one of the things suggested by federal directors, you know, that that writers should go out, they should start in their communities, they should look for elderly residents who would have good stories to tell about the old days, um, that, they, that elderly residents uh, of various areas could be really important resources uh, for gathering uh, historical information and also cultural information that could be included in the guide series. And so part of that then came about from people deciding to interview um, formerly enslaved African-Americans who were obviously very elderly at this time period and would have been the oldest inhabitants uh, in many regions. And the stories that they had to tell then about the experience of their enslavement, but also the stories that they had to tell about emancipation uh, and their lives. Um, as freed men and freed women. And those interviews with African-Americans uh, caught the attention then of the federal directors, federal directors like Henry Allsberg, um, when they were forwarded on from the state offices then to uh, the uh, federal offices in Washington, D.C., and Henry Allsberg uh, and his associate, uh, George Cronin, were so taken with the immediacy of this oral testimony from formerly enslaved African-Americans that they felt that this was a project that should be undertaken in its own right. Um, and not just as this kind of supplementary element to the American Guide series, but something that could yield kind of uh, a treasure trove and an important um, uh, repository, if you will, of African-American folk culture and traditions that were dying out uh, in this time period with the encroachment of mass media and mass culture, and that you could also then record, importantly, 
uh, the firsthand testimony of the last generation of African-Americans who could speak firsthand with firsthand knowledge about their experience of slavery and emancipation. So that's kind of uh, how it came about. But I just I just want to emphasize I'm just I'm still struck when I when I look back at this. Um, that it was such a revolutionary undertaking, I think, for the federal government in this time period. And I think all of the arts projects were revolutionary, certainly in terms of the history of the United States federal government, deciding finally to put some major money uh, and, and funding into cultural projects and recording the cultural history of the nation as, you know, of seminal importance in this time period. But really revolutionary in terms of the federal writers ex-slave project. Um, revolutionary undertaking in the 1930s during a time period of Jim Crow segregation to have um, employees of the Federal Writers Project go out and collect, again, really for the first time in any wide-scale attempt to do so, uh, the firsthand testimony of formerly enslaved African-Americans. It was also revolutionary in terms of Again, kind of as I was talking about those anthropological encounters of bringing together um, people to speak across kind of the color line or across the great divide uh, created by Jim Crow uh, and segregation, you know, bringing uh, Southern whites kind of sitting down, literally sitting down at the same table, um, sitting down in the same on the same porch with formerly enslaved African-Americans and trying to speak across that divide of race but also trying to speak across divides uh, based upon class, uh, divides based upon uh, education levels, um, kind of these various divisions, um, trying to bring Americans together to talk about the still highly charged uh, subject of enslavement and emancipation. So it's just a revolutionary project in, in so many ways and also a really seminal moment um, in that African-Americans were really, for the first time, being invited to contribute their voices, to contribute their perspective, uh, to contribute their knowledge uh, in the creation of a new archive uh, that would be about the history of enslavement and emancipation, and to contribute their voices and their skills and their talents as writers to the creation of what the FWP hoped would be kind of a new national narrative uh, about the meaning and legacy of slavery and emancipation for the nation as a whole. So it was kind of an extraordinary moment where African-Americans are being invited uh, to speak with authority about those experiences, both firsthand and then also um, as African-American employees of the Federal Writers Project who are working as interviewers and writers and editors, also being, you know, um, allowed and enabled uh, to draw upon their expertise to talk about these issues for the first time to a national audience. Uh, And yet a moment that because of the 1930s and the racial politics of that era, um, a moment that was um, deeply uh, conflicted, if you will, in terms of the goals and the possible outcomes of this project and this endeavor. And so one of the things that you point out in your book when you're talking about these uh, ex-slave narratives and sort of setting them up and, you know, introducing them to the reader is how you read them in terms of, you know, you point out that you're, you know, earlier on you were talking about, you know, the, the wide diversity of topics that are covered and how they're covered and everything like that. And but you're not exactly trying to, you know, 
create a catalog of like everything that's discussed in these narratives. You look at them in a very particular way and you read them in a very particular way. And so can you tell our readers how you do this and why that's important? So I really wanted to take a look at this um, repository of ex-slave testimony for what it has to tell us about the 1930s and the time period in which it was created. Most scholars have drawn upon uh, this rich resource uh, to really help them rewrite histories of enslavement and what happened with emancipation and reconstruction. But I was really intrigued by, again, kind of seeing on the page what these exchanges uh, between Federal Writers Project employees as interviewers and informants who were formerly enslaved African Americans, what these conversational exchanges um, had to reveal about the context in which they were created of the 1930s. So one of the things I did is I really wanted to kind of excavate um, the various voices that I think show up in the written record, uh, if you're reading carefully. And to, that is to say that as I was discovering, as I was looking at the history of the project, there are many different stakeholders, if you will, or many different groups who were invested in becoming involved in this project to collect ex-slave testimony, um, but who were putting their own spin on ex-slave oral histories and oral testimony, um, who had their own agendas to pursue um, and who who thought that they could pursue it through kind of shaping, uh, editing, um, revising, influencing um, the stories and the histories of uh, ex-slaves in this time period. So there's a number of ways in which you have different stakeholders all, again, kind of invested in telling their own story about Black citizenship, about the legacy of slavery, specifically through the narratives. And I wanted to see if reading the narratives themselves, again, with the knowledge of kind of how the project had evolved over time. So at the same time, I was drawing upon the enormous um, amounts of administrative correspondence that fortunately exist uh, for the project, because one of the things that's great about New Deal projects in the 1930s is that they kept everything. So all of the administrative records and correspondence and the back and forth between local and state directors and federal directors is all there uh, in the National Archives for uh, scholars to look at. But I wanted to kind of use those two things in conjunction to see again if I could see the ways in which former slaves had shaped their stories in different ways, um, depending upon whom they were speaking to. And what I really thought, kind of going back to that idea of James Clifford and the predicament of culture and this kind of interest in anthropological exchange between anthropologists and their local informants, I really wanted to see um, if I could bring forward or make visible the power relationships um, that were involved in these exchanges and then show up themselves in the narratives that were created. So one of the things I wanted to think about was the ways in which uh, formerly enslaved African-Americans were in this situation of in different contexts of being interviewed by a variety of different types of interviewers um, of, of different uh, racial backgrounds, both black and white interviewers, the ways in which they were shaping their own stories, uh, depending upon the listener. And I wanted to look specifically at these narratives as a type of oral performance. So I was intrigued to think about kind of the ways in which African-Americans were strategic storytellers in terms of the ways they were relating their own narratives and really kind of explaining why uh, you do have um, 
interviews uh, specifically where uh, former slaves are talking about, again, kind of the good old days of slavery versus, you know, interviews where there's a, quite a bit of testimony about the brutality um, and the violence of the system. So I'm intrigued in kind of this idea of oral performance and how you have this kind of situation of live interaction between interviewers and ex-slaves who are being asked to kind of tell their life histories. And I was interested in the ways in which a number of former slaves were drawing upon African-American oral traditions, Um, African-American oral traditions of um, storytelling, but also African-American oral traditions that are kind of summed up by the term signifying. So signifying is this idea or specifically this concept of African-American oral tradition or vernacular tradition that is a language of indirection and a language or, if you will, a rhetorical uh, practice of implication. And so it's a way very often of saying the truth or expressing a certain truth, but coding it, um, but kind of creating it, um, covering it, if you will, cloaking it if you will, using humor, using indirection, um, using figurative language very often. And so as I started to analyze kind of the narratives themselves for signifying, for evidence of African-American using oral traditions in this exchange with FWP interviews, I found a number of ways in which they were drawing upon these traditions specifically to tell their own truths Um, in contexts where they knew that they were being faced with a white questioner with a Southern white interviewer very often who was not interested necessarily um, in hearing those particular truths about the institution of slavery. So I found a lot of ways in which African-American informants in this kind of context of being interviewed about their experiences um, found ways to tell the truth of their experience, but again, um, wrap it or cloak it, if you will, um, in language, in terms that would have been more acceptable to a number of Southern white interviewers um, who were not, well, let's, let's put it this way, who were particularly invested in an image and a representation of the institution of slavery as, again, a benevolent institution, and who were particularly invested in, again, this um, romanticized, heavily mythologized idea of um, wonderful, uh, close relationships between uh, enslavers um, and enslaved African Americans. So I was looking kind of to see uh, evidence of those signifying practices. I should say that um, signifying and kind of that term for this series of kind of um, oral performances or drawing upon African-American oral traditions is something that the novelist and the writer Zora Neale Hurston uh, was actually one of the first to kind of term or talk about in her own writing. She was a professionally trained ethnographer. She had worked with um, the renowned anthropologist Franz Boas, and she was a very skilled and gifted ethnographer in terms of collecting African-American history and folk culture. And she ended up being employed, as were a number of kind of literary luminaries of the time. She was employed by the Federal Writers Project uh, and was also engaged in kind of collecting uh, Black folk culture in this time period. So she writes about signifying um, as this type of practice, as this type of world tradition that African-Americans very often would draw upon um, when faced with kind of hostile white questioners. Um, I'm trying to think. She talks about it kind of as, um, I think she uses the the metaphor uh, of kind of a feather bed mattress that 
uh, when faced with kind of white questioners who are hostile to what you might have to say or the truth that you might want to reveal um, that you that African-Americans would let the probe enter. But in this kind of feather bed, uh, you know, it gets smothered. Right. The truth gets smothered or kind of muffled, if you will, under laughter and pleasantry. So, again, it's kind of a, a mode or method of of being indirect, um, while at the same time, uh, making sure that your own truth is recorded. So my argument is if you can, and I found evidence of signifying throughout uh, the slave narrative collection, um, if you read carefully for those patterns of oral traditions and humor and indirection, and you're sensitive and, and are attuned to signifying practices as they might appear in these narratives, you can find the ways in which, uh, ex-slave informants were creating counter narratives, if you will, um, counter narratives of the history of slavery and emancipation, um, very often narratives that directly contradicted um, Southern whites' investment in kind of Confederate mythologies of um, the good old days of slavery. And you can find the ways in which they're writing not only their own or telling, if you will, uh, their own life histories and the reality and truth of those histories, but then also, as I said, kind of creating, if you will, strategic counter narratives um, to make sure that their their voices and their truth and their experience would be put in the historical record, um, even when, again, they were trying to shape it um, specifically for uh, the person who was listening or the person who was asking those questions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, and so kind of speaking about, you know, the kind of the larger context of what's going on that, you know, you have uh, these white Southerners who have their own kind of vision of what slavery looks like that might be in competition with the formerly enslaved people's vision of what slavery looks like. Um, what is the sort of kind of larger historical context of this moment outside of, you know, what we just talked about with the uh, New Deal and the Federal Writers Project, the sort of kind of larger uh, racial historical context that would make uh, the ex-slave narratives, as you put them, a sort of case study uh, for whether emancipation was even successful. And so kind of what's going on there and how how are the ex-slave narratives at this time kind of perceived this way? Yeah, that's such a great question. And there's kind of two different ways of answering it, as always, with with great questions or multiple ways of answering it. Um, one is specifically to think about, as you said, kind of the time period uh, in which these were created um, because of what's happening in the 1930s, um, because Jim Crow uh, segregation is still rampant, um, not just in the South, but also throughout the nation in northern areas as well, because African-Americans are still struggling mightily for equality of economic opportunity, for political enfranchisement, um, for uh, even uh, social equality, as it was termed at the time. Um, really struggling, continuing to struggle through various civil rights movements and organizations for um, the rights of citizenship, which they should have been and were by rights uh, granted 
by the Constitution, um, because all of that is still a moment um, of great uh, racial inequity and inequality, the ex-slave narratives and really the ex-slaves themselves for a number of different people involved in the Federal Writers Ex-Slave Project become, if you will, the proving ground, um, kind of become the way of assessing or evaluating um, to what extent um, was emancipation successful? Uh, to what extent uh, were African Americans uh, considered fit or ready for the full rights and responsibilities of citizenship? Obviously, coming from a white perspective on that issue of uh, whether or not equality should be finally enacted. Um, and so the ex slaves and their narratives really kind of become this site where different Americans from different um, backgrounds are really working out ideas about citizenship, about freedom, and about power. Um, and I can give you kind of just a, a quick little example, if that's helpful, to kind of make it uh, less abstract. But as I mentioned, um, one of the really surprising, I guess, and interesting finds um, that I discovered doing my research was the fact that a number of Southern white interviewers were members of the organization known as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, also known as the UDC, was established in 1894. Um, it was one of a number of Southern white organizations established uh, in the decade uh, following uh, emancipation and kind of throughout the Reconstruction era, era that were really focusing on um, writing a national narrative about slavery and emancipation that was from the Confederate perspective, uh, really trying to memorialize and um, consecrate, if you will, kind of in national memory, um, the idea of the lost cause. So that would be, in short, the idea that, again, slavery was a benevolent institution, uh, that it was necessary. Um, it would also be the idea that the Civil War was actually, in some cases, uh, as they like to put it, a war of northern aggression. Um, actually, to this day, uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy also prefer the phrase uh, the war between the states as opposed to the Civil War, um, because they really were arguing and trying to imprint upon the historical record that the Civil War was not about slavery, which we do know it was about because we have the documentation of that, but specifically that it was not about slavery, that it was about states' rights. Um, and again, this idea that it was really kind of a um, slavery itself was kind of a beautiful institution uh, that worked effectively for Southern whites as well as for enslaved African-Americans. So I discovered that a number of FWP interviewers were members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy had been working since its formation in 1894 into the 20th century to really, again, imprint on the national narrative um, this idea of kind of the um, Southern mythology of the lost cause. And they found various ways to do this. They had essay contests and they wrote, wrote biographies of Confederate heroes. Um, they erected a number of statues, which I'm sure most people are familiar with because of the ongoing debates today about whether those statues should remain in certain places. And they also then were engaged in creating very often um, what they called faithful slave narratives. They like to record um, what they saw as kind of firsthand testimony of former slaves uh, that would talk about kind of uh, the good old days of slavery. So you can imagine that some of the um, 
interviewers and then also in a couple cases, state directors of the FWP, of the Federal Writers Project, who were involved in the ex-slave project, um, were very invested in taking ex-slave testimony, in gathering ex-slave testimony for this project that would, again, um, reiterate and authorize, if you will, from the mouths of former slaves themselves, this idea of kind of the lost cause mythology. Uh, of the Confederacy uh, and of kind of the Civil War. And so they were interested in kind of getting answers to the questions that they were posing um, that they were hoping would, again, emphasize this idea of faithful slaves, of faithful, happy slaves, um, contented uh, and well-treated by their enslavers. So that was one kind of constituency. Um, One of the other um, things that interested me in the ex-slave narratives were the ways in which African-Americans as writers, and in one case, um, actually as a federal director for the Federal Writers Project, uh, in the case of Sterling Brown, who was a poet and professor of English at Howard University, and who, thanks to kind of the um, advocacy of civil rights organizations, who was then the only African-American appointed to um, the position and the authority of being a federal director for the Federal Writers Project in the time. I wanted to kind of look specifically at what their experience was like uh, with the project. As I mentioned at the beginning, it was kind of an unprecedented um, invitation uh, for African-Americans to speak to a national audience and participate in the creation of a national narrative about the legacy of slavery and emancipation. And African-American employees from every level of the project Um, were very eager um, to be able to have their voices amplified in this way. And many of the employees of the Federal Writers Project, and I can talk a little bit specifically about the ones I looked at in the state of Florida, who are part of a very important um, segregated Negro writers unit uh, that also included um, the illustrious and um, brilliant genius Sora Neale Hurston, a lot of those uh, writers and interviewers for the FWP who were involved in the project really saw this as the opportunity um, to, again, um, fight uh, racism, fight discrimination in a time period when African-Americans were really being denied their basic rights as citizens. And the ways in which they hoped to do that was to use uh, the ex-slave project uh, and their participation in it to put forward Um, portraits of African-American character and identity that would um, contradict uh, white racial supremacy, that would contradict um, racial characterizations and stereotypes of African-Americans as somehow racially inferior and unfit for citizenship. So a number of those African-American writers and interviewers were really um, striving not only to get the voices of ex-slaves and their firsthand testimony down for the historical record in terms of um, the brutality of the system, but also in terms of African-Americans' constant struggle for liberation, uh, in terms of their constant struggle during enslavement and then after emancipation uh, to find a way to move forward uh, from the legacy of slavery. And they were very interested in creating portraits of African-Americans that would focus on this concept of racial uplift, that would show African-Americans as capable of assimilating into American society, that would show African-Americans as um, successful participants and longtime contributors uh, to the establishment of the American nation. And so they had their own viewpoint in terms of trying to promote 
uh, images and identities of African Americans that they helped, that they hoped um, would, similar to the Harlem Renaissance kind of efforts, that they hoped would finally persuade um, American whites of African Americans' um, readiness and fitness and um, rights of citizenship that were so deserved in this time period. And one thing that I found very interesting for uh, in your study is how you discuss the actual instructions that interviewers have um, and why that's important to how the uh, ex-slave narratives kind of develop and then how you kind of how you're reading them and everything like that. And so can you give our listeners an idea of what these instructions looked like and why they're so important for your study? Yeah. So as I said, the um, the wonderful thing about studying both this project and then really all the New Deal projects from the 1930s is the wonderful documentation, the very careful documentation and keeping of records um, in terms of how these projects evolved and developed. Now, both for the American Guide series and then also for the ex-slave project, as you can imagine, um, federal directors in Washington, D.C. are trying to oversee uh, projects that are happening in almost every state, in almost every region and location. And they were concerned that they would end up getting material that would be too widely divergent, um, you know, that they'd be having um, all kinds of bits and pieces uh, coming from different interviewers and different writers and different perspectives and then being sent forth uh, to the federal office um, and that there wouldn't be a sense of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say homogeneity because that's not what they were looking for, but a sense of um, cohesion, if you will, to all of these pieces that were being written, you know, in different little cities and areas. And then at the state director's offices, then sent on and edited and then sent on to the federal office. So they were interested in sending out guidelines. And they were also aware that they were hiring, you know, a range of writers, um, some with a lot of experience, um, some who were journalists, some who had been novelists, um, some who had very little experience necessarily, partly uh, with this type of writing. And they wanted to create a series of federal guidelines that would assist, um, particularly with uh, the collection of ex-slave testimony. So some of their manuals and directives that they start putting together and sending out um, to state offices and then also local offices specifically had to do with, you know, how do you find an informant? Right? And then uh, specifically, how do you go about um, getting them to tell you uh, what they know? getting them to tell you their memories, getting them to trust you enough to be able to record their own life experiences and their life histories. So some of those manuals and federal directives um, were very basic in terms of just kind of talking about good interview techniques, um, talking about being able to put the interviewee at ease, um, trying to develop a rapport with an ex-slave informant. Uh, many of the federal guidelines suggested that interviewers go back more than once um, to the same informant, again, in the hopes of kind of getting more information um, from that African-American interviewee. So a number of the federal guidelines focused on those kind of methods, if you will, of gathering information. And then as they started receiving more and more ex-slave narratives that were being sent on finally to the federal office, um, they also became concerned about the um, 
way in which they were being written down. So as I said before, you know, some of these narratives, if you look in the collection, are written kind of in the third person as kind of brief biographical sketches. Um, some of them, a lot of them actually are written in the first person um, in the voice, attempting to recreate the voice of the ex-slave on the page. Those that do that um, really showed a wide range of very often Southern white listeners' ideas about Black speech, um, and specifically the ways in which they heard or misheard um, African-American um, versions of vernacular speech. And so the federal directors became enamored, not so much Sterling Brown, as I said, who became the director of the Office of Negro Affairs and who was the only African-American employed uh, at the federal level. Not so much Sterling Brown, but many of the other um, directors, particularly John Lomax, um, who may be familiar to some people uh, because he was one of the uh, most important uh, collectors of folk songs and folk culture and folklore uh, during the 1930s and 40s. And he became uh, the Folkways director for the Federal Writers Project. Uh, John Lomax in particular, and also Henry Allsberg, were very interested in having the narratives um, seem as if it was just the voice of the ex-slave speaking. Um, so they were interested specifically in, in this idea of being able to hear, as you read, being able to hear the voice of the ex-slave informant. Because of that, they were encouraging um, state directors and employees to write up those narratives in that first person voice, you know, as they were hearing it. Um, they were also encouraging them to try to be as accurate as possible uh, in terms of writing down uh, what ex-slave informants told them, even though much of that writing down also took place once they'd gotten back to the office um, and were looking back over their notes. And they were really encouraged um, to write it um, in some manner that would capture the unique qualities of certain aspects of African-American speech traditions, really trying to capture kind of idiomatic expressions and phrasing. Um, unfortunately, what that meant uh, to a lot of Southern whites who were going out and kind of gathering these ex-slave narratives was this idea of um, phoneticized spelling to try to recreate what they thought or what they referred to as a Negro dialect um, on the page. And a lot of that phoneticized spelling to try to capture um, those elements of uh, Black folk speech um, ended up actually creating kind of a defamiliarizing process where you're really kind of recreating a sense of essential racial immutable differences literally on the page um, and not actually doing it very effectively in terms of actually being honest or accurate about how African-American informants were actually speaking. So when you do look at the kind of um, what one writer has called the I dialect that shows up in that type of writing, uh, where you're trying to kind of give voice um, to uh, rural, uh, elderly, uh, Southern African-Americans. Um, she calls it I-dialect, E-Y-I, you know, kind of an ocular uh, representation, a visual representation of Black speech on the page, um, really had much more to do with Southern whites' ideas um, as they've been influenced by vaudeville traditions, as they've been influenced by 
um, minstrelsy um, as they'd been influenced by what they thought uh, black speech sounded like and what they thought it should be represented as on the page. So federal directors were very concerned then that you have all kinds of, you know, odd spellings coming in, um, all kinds of misplaced prepositions and um, the ways in which, you know, there was such great um, variation in terms of Southern whites' attempts to record African-American oral traditions and speech on the page. And so they sent out guidelines specifically on uh, how to spell uh, certain words, um, how to spell, you know, dialect that they should be avoiding when possible, um, phoneticized spelling that wasn't necessary. Uh, So, for example, many Southern whites would spell was, you know, if I was said I was going, they would spell W-A-S as W-U-Z. As you can tell, that actually was and was sounds exactly the same. But on the page, it has the effect of, again, really emphasizing African-American speech as um, unlettered, as untutored, as something other than standard English. Um, And again, many of these Southern whites were really invested in this notion of essential racial differences um, in this idea of um, immutable um, racial differences that uh, were manifested in what they thought of as black racial inferiority. And they thought that that uh, racial inferiority also was represented in black speech and that that should be recorded on the page. Um, it, it gets interesting because, you know, federal directors were also receiving narratives um, that were written in the voice of the ex-slave that were also just in standard English. And the federal office and directors, particularly John Lomax, who was so interested in folk culture um, and black folk expressions, particularly, uh, he was very disappointed with any narratives that were written in the first person but came forth uh, in what would be called standard English. And so there was a lot of encouragement, actually, from the federal directors' offices back to state directors um, to always submit ex-slave testimony and narrative in a type of, you know, again, what was referred to at the time as a Negro dialect, um, just to give us the sense of authenticity and to give it the sense of local color and local flavor. So people like Sterling Brown, who, as I said, was the director of the Office of Negro Affairs, he had the unenviable task of being the sole African-American in a position of federal authority for this project. And his office received all of the copy that was coming forward from state uh, projects having to do with African-American history, culture and identity. And his tiny office, he had like three staff members occasionally, not always at the same time. Um, That tiny office then under Sterling Brown was responsible for trying trying to review um, and correct kind of the worst um, misrepresentations of black culture, of black speech, of black identity that were coming forward um, from state projects. So it was an enormous undertaking and there was a lot of corrections, uh, a lot of corrections that had to be made. So Sterling Brown in particular, you know, is a professor of English. Um, He was a poet. Uh, He was um, very attuned to um, the interesting aspects of idiomatic expression um, from different regions uh, for African-Americans in different areas. And he was particularly alarmed by this type of I dialect uh, that kept showing up um, in a lot of Southern white submissions that, again, was really emphasizing this notion of black racial otherness, 
and really not paying attention um, or accurately representing in any way the way in which African-American informants were speaking. Um, but what I was going to say is that the, some of the federal directors like John Lomax were so invested in this notion of kind of the authenticity of the first person narrative always being written in a type of Negro dialect or spoken in that way, um, that state directors who were submitting narratives that were written in standard English very often felt that they had to explain uh, why they were doing so when they did so. So they would submit narratives that were written in standard English and they would say, um, I know that the federal office really wants all of these to use Negro dialect and expression, um, but unfortunately, uh, this particular ex-slave informant is very well educated and, and well lettered and, and, and didn't, you know, didn't show any aspects of uh, kind of vernacular folk speech that we could record. So there, you know, it's complicated to talk about just because there were so many kind of evolving ideas over time, even such, even though it takes place over such just a few years of the project from 1936 to 1939, even within that short span of time, very quickly, uh, federal directors are kind of evolving in their ideas about what type of standardization needs to take place in this project in terms of the types of narratives they want submitted, the types of questions they want asked, um, how they want these written up, how they want them edited. Um, and again, differing ideas even at the federal level in terms of the best way to go about representing uh, Black folk speech on the page. While the uh, Federal Writers Project went throughout the entire country looking for ex-slave narratives, one of the places that you look in detail is Florida. And so why did you choose to look in detail in Florida and what might have set it apart from other places? Well, Florida is such an interesting case study because it was actually thanks to Florida uh, and the Florida project that was under the direction of Carita Doggett Course, who was serving as the Florida State Director. It was Florida that had first kind of uh, created a number of ex-slave narratives that were sent on to the federal directors in Washington um, that really garnered the attention of federal directors like John Lomax and Henry Allsberg. So Carita Doggett Course uh, became the state director of the Florida Project right at the beginning of the start of the FWP in 1935. And within just a few months of becoming uh, the state director, she has this vision for creating a separate unit that would be comprised entirely or composed entirely of African-American writers. And she herself was completely enamored with Zora Neale Hurston. She was aware of Hurston's kind of rising stardom as a writer and ethnographer. Um, Zora Neale Hurston at the time before she was hired on to the Florida Project uh, had published Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, she had published a seminal and really important uh, ethnography on Black folk culture called Mules and Men. And Carita Doggett Course had this vision of having a separate unit specifically for African-American writers that would be headed uh, under the directorship of Zora Neale Hurston. Now, that didn't actually ever play out that way, and I'd be happy to talk about why um, Zora Neale Hurston does come and work for the project, but she never actually becomes director of the separate unit. But it's kind of, I would say, Carita Doggett Course's vision for having African-Americans employed um, specifically to cover and um, 
collect and gather and write about Black history, culture, and identity, and specifically gather ex-slave narratives that really, as I said, kind of captures the attention of the federal office. And it's after their receipt of the narratives, the ex-slave narratives from Florida, that they decide that they're going to create this separate ex-slave project. Um, And it's after the receipt of those Florida narratives that they end up sending out letters to other Southern state directors um, saying, we've gotten these great ex-slave narratives from Florida, and we would really like to undertake this same enterprise um, in your project as well. So even though a number of other states had already been out gathering um, occasionally an ex-slave narrative here or there as part of kind of the American Guide series, for some reason, it was Florida's ex-slave narratives that really caught the attention of Henry Allsburg and John Lomax. And then the other aspect of Florida, as I mentioned, is that um, Perita Doggett Course, unlike many other uh, Southern state directors at the time period, was very invested in having African-American writers and interviewers involved in the project um, from the get-go. In a number of other cases, unfortunately, and you see this in the administrative and federal correspondence, um, state directors are very discriminatory in their hiring practices. And even though they're not supposed to be, um, in many cases, they do not want to hire African-Americans as workers and employees in the Federal Writers Project. And it's only through extreme pressure that's applied from the federal directors that they finally do start hiring uh, African-Americans for these positions as interviewers and writers and editors. But in Florida, Florida was one of three states in the South to create a separate Negro Writers Unit. Now, even though separate Negro Writers Units obviously were created because of segregation, and that was the idea, was that, you know, you couldn't have African-Americans and and white workers, you know, working in the same office space. Um, And that was one of the reasons that many Southern state directors gave for not hiring more African-Americans is that you had no place to put them where they would be properly segregated. Um, Even though these separate Negro Writers Units came about as a result, obviously, of the Uh, racial segregation of the time period. In many of the cases, in three of the cases, as I said, um, Florida had a wonderful Negro Writers Unit, Louisiana, um, and Virginia also had very distinguished uh, Negro Writers Units. In those cases, surprisingly, I found that because of their separate status, because they had a separate unit, that in many of those cases, African-American writers in those capacities were able to make a greater contribution um, to the Federal Writers Project in terms of the collection and writing up of Black history and culture than African-American employees who were not hired um, as kind of a separate unit. So it's kind of one of the ironies of the history of the project and, and racial segregation. But Florida had a Negro Writers Unit that, again, was experiencing a great deal of racial discrimination, even within Florida. Um, and I could talk a little bit more about that, but um, they certainly were able to create um, and write up more of a portrait of African-American history and character and experience, um, including ex-slave narratives in Florida than other states um, where African-Americans were not being employed as, as kind of a separate unit. The other aspect of that is that um, the other benefit, unintended benefit of focusing on Florida is that I was able to do an oral history myself. And so the book is about kind of a history of oral history uh, that took place in the 1930s. um, And it's about the kind of practice of oral history and the problems and methodology of oral history. But I myself had to have that experience firsthand um, because I was able to go uh, interview in Florida Stetson Kennedy 
Stetson Kennedy uh, was a human rights activist, um, and he was also a central employee of the Florida Project. And he was still alive at the time that I was conducting my research. And he was able to actually tell me firsthand about what it was like to work with Zora Neale Hurston. Stetson Kennedy had been hired by Carita Doggett Course um, as a you know white Floridian. Um, to be the head of folkways and life histories for the Florida Project. And so he could give me firsthand kind of testimony about what how, what the project looked like um, as it played out in Florida and what were some of those conflicts that happened um, over kind of Southern white visions of the past versus African-American uh, portraits of the past. And one of the things he did when he took me on kind of an oral history tour, if you will, of Jacksonville, he took me to Jacksonville to show me where the central uh, office headquarters had been, where Carita Doggett Course was working. Um, as the state director and where he himself was working as the director of Folkways. And he took me to a building, which in the 1930s was a brand new office building called the Exchange Building. It was this, you know, in the 1930s, a beautiful, glossy new office building. And that's where all of the Southern whites who were in in Jacksonville working for the Federal Writers Project um, were doing all of their office work. And then we drove less than a mile across uh, town to the Clara White Mission, which is still there, um, and at the time was a charitable African-American organization in the 1930s that functioned in multiple ways uh, for the black community of Jacksonville. It was a soup kitchen, but it was also an important community center. Um, they had uh, um, child care available there. They had classes and all kinds of things. They were also then, as a mission, providing important office space for African-American employees who were not allowed, because of the rules of segregation, who were not allowed to work in the exchange building. So, you know, right within less than a mile across town, you have the exchange building, which is housing all of the Southern whites working on the Federal Writers Project, and then less than a mile across town at the Clara White Mission, thanks to the Clara White Mission. There's a limited amount of space available for the members of Florida's Negro Writers Unit who are all working there. And Seton Kennedy told me that every two weeks um, they would have to send a messenger from the Clara White Mission over to the exchange building to gather up the paychecks for the members of Florida's Negro Writers Unit and bring those paychecks back uh, to the Clara White Mission. Zora Neale Hurston, because of her celebrity, was actually the only African-American who was ever allowed to visit the exchange office and the state headquarters in that district office. Um, And even when she came to visit, uh, Carita Doggett Course had to kind of prepare uh, the staff uh, made up of Southern whites uh, to let them know uh, that a special exception was going to be made uh, for uh, for Zora Neale Hurston as a kind of African-American author and celebrity. So it was very interesting getting to talk to Stetson Kennedy, and that was one of the real advantages there. Again, I'm giving you more material than you need, but um, one of my experiences of doing oral history in Florida, you know, was similar to kind of, I think, some of the struggles that um, employees of the Federal Writers Project encountered when they're trying to go out and kind of meet strangers for the first time and quickly develop a rapport in order to kind of get these strangers to tell them uh, personal details and personal history and kind of gather important information. Um, Stetson Kennedy had by mail, by correspondence, agreed to meet with me. 
And I had my little research grant and I went down to Florida for the first time really uh, to kind of explore that option and had planned to meet with him the next day to start this kind of oral history of the Federal Writers Project and his memories of it. And, you know, he seemed to get cold feet at the last minute. And so the day that I called him, um, he told me that I would actually have to meet with his um, fiance, uh, Sandra Parks at the time. And I could tell that she was going to screen me, you know, it was going to be through this kind of third party, um, that she would assess whether or not I was worthy or, um, reputable enough, uh, to be able to be granted access to Stetson Kennedy to gather my, my oral history interview with him. And that turned out to be, you know, a um, mitzvah, if you will, that turned out to be a fortuitous experience because Sandra Parks um, was an amazing, uh, still is amazing um, person in Florida, personage in Florida, but she really put my, me through my paces. So I went to meet her at her bookshop and then she insisted that I actually uh, take part in the reenactment of um, the British occupation of Florida, which happened to be taking place that day that I was in Florida. And she had a reenactor's costume that had been specially made for her <laughs> that she insisted that I wear. She's much taller and thinner than I am. And so I squeezed myself at Sandra, Sandra Park's behest into her outfit. And then I actually, for the first time and last time, uh, took place in a reenactment, uh, kind of living history reenactment, if you will, um, walking through the streets of St. Augustine at night um, to kind of commemorate this moment of British occupation. So that was an experience where I knew that I had to do everything that Sandra Parks suggested, um, just in the hopes that I would then be granted access to Stetson Kennedy. Um, and to my great good fortune, um, I guess I proved my mettle and uh, Sandra Parks gave me the go ahead. And, and from then on, Stetson Kennedy was um, incredibly uh, generous and forthcoming in assisting me with my research. Well, that's certainly a, a, a trial in and of itself, trying to get the material. <laughs> it really was. It was a real challenge, but it ended up being a real joy and obviously a great story afterwards. So we have this great book in front of us, you know, once again, Long Past Slavery, Representing Race in the Federal Writers Project by Dr. Catherine A. Stewart. And I would encourage our readers to all go out and read and hopefully buy this book. But we have this in front of us. Um, and so once we get through this, what can we expect to be seen from you in the future? What might you be working on now? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Um, what's What's great about doing one project is that very often, if you're fortunate and kind of paying attention, it can lead you uh, to your next um, your next passion and your next obsession. And that happened with this project. So right now, I'm still grounded and kind of working within the New Deal framework because I find it such a fascinating uh, time period in American history for multiple reasons. And I'm still very much interested in. Um, the racial politics of the 1930s and the obstacles and limitations um, that African-Americans were facing and struggling against um, during this time period. And so this time I'm still looking at the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, but I'm looking at a different project. Um, and that was a project uh, specifically put in place um, for women. Uh, the idea of trying to figure out ways in which um, women could find work. And part of that idea of the women's division um, of the WPA was to provide professional training 
for women who could then become domestic servants. So it was this idea that, you know, women's occupations, you know, were a limited range of opportunities in the time period. The idea was that if the WPA created, and they did, household training projects um, that would put women to work both as educators, as trainers, and then also as people taking those courses and getting that certification, that that would, in and of itself, they hoped, help raise the status of domestic work, which was considered, you know, certainly um, kind of an, an unenviable job and task and really a stigmatized in many ways occupation, uh, many ways occupation in this time period. And they hoped that by having professional training programs in place that it would elevate both the status of that occupation. And then they also hoped uh, it would elevate wages, um, which were terribly low uh, for domestic workers, household workers in the 1930s during the Great Depression. So it was a government's attempt to kind of, you know, create uh, programs that would assist those workers. Certainly, one of the things I'm finding in my research is that, unfortunately, um, these kind of goodwill efforts to create certification and training programs and hoping that that in and of itself would encourage employers to give uh, raise wages and uh, raise salaries for those workers um, didn't really work out uh, the way that they hoped. But I'm very interested, again, how this intersection, if you will, of kind of the economic crisis of the Great Depression the racial politics and struggles of civil rights organizations during the 1930s against segregation and attempts to um, create equal opportunity in this time period intersecting with that economic crisis, and then the federal government's attempts to also engage uh, and try to solve and address various issues that are raised by this economic crisis, how those things come together. Um, in this fulcrum, if you will, that is kind of the um, social, economic, and kind of political crisis of the 1930s. So I remain kind of um, really committed to and really interested in this nexus of, if you will, race and class and nation um, in this really troubling and critical uh, moment of possibility in American history that is the 1930s. Well, that certainly sounds interesting, and I'm sure once that work is completed, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you, Derek, so much. It's been a pleasure.